So in light of it being Father's Day, I decided to speak on fathers. Uh, The biblical topic of family relations is not one that's very popular, even in most churches today. Men have for many decades found it easier to abdicate their role and let the wife rule the home, and that has even found its way into the church as we hear of the debates and struggles there. Years back, uh, the local Presbyterian church down the street from where we currently live was the church that my mother had attended before she passed away. And she would occasionally tell me these stories of how certain things, you know, women would step up to lead certain things, and the women would assume the roles of leadership in this area and that area. And, of course, I would always ask her, well, why do they do that? Why does the oversight of the church allow them to do that? Her answer typically typically was, well, because the men either do not come or they will not leave. My response to her was always something along the lines of, well, then maybe that's a sign that from God that this ministry should you know, fold. I mean, I would try to explain to her that if God has a biblically laid out structure on how his church is to be run, and if that structure is not able to be fulfilled, then maybe that's a sign that that particular local ministry is not being supported any longer by God in the way that it should be, and so the members should therefore seek to align themselves with another local body that the Lord is working in. Of course, much of that thought would fall on deaf ears. Things would proceed business as usual without any concern for the right way to do things. People today are more prone to do things their way regardless of if there is a right way. So why should the modern church with its individualistic mentality seek to adhere to God's guidelines? The world and the church are are messed up place as we have seen, as we see both being radically influenced in major, by major push of egalitarianism. Now, egalitarianism, for those who are not familiar with the words, mainly the younger ones, it's, a, it, it's in general, it's an issue that plagues the human mind and attempts to teach that each person in all and any station in life should be treated as total equals in all circumstances. It ignores any differences between people and seeks to level the playing field, making everyone basically the same when it comes to both qualifications and social status. On a surface level, understanding of this, we find some good practices for when it comes to places and positions in life, it is not a bad idea to give everyone at least the opportunity to seek to acquire the same positions. But in reality, to ignore fundamentally differences, the fundamental differences in people and in their abilities is just silly. Not everyone is made or equipped to be the same, nor do they function well in the same positions. We are equipped to work with one another, and combined, our strengths and weaknesses benefit the whole. That is plainly laid out as a biblical understanding of the importance of corporate togetherness, and we find it detailed nicely in 1 Corinthians 12. So after laying out some of the smaller details on smaller, weaker pieces and how they are to be honored, Paul ends the section in 12.26 by saying, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. From 1 Corinthians 12.26. This oneness of the body can easily be carried over into the marital relationship. Yahweh did not call two separate but and totally equal people to come together and become one. He brought together two equally important people with equally important roles, though different roles from one another. When it comes to men and women, in many ways, they have the ability to do a lot of the same things, but they are not simply to act like two individuals doing the same thing. They are equipped differently and together they work in unity. Men and women are different, and they are made that way in order that they will come together and make a better unit. 
However, this unit will only truly succeed when each individual truly understands what they are to perform. Think about it like a nut and a bolt. Both get used in the same way to perform, both get used to perform the same end goal, but both are performing entirely different functions to reach that goal. A nut is not equal to a bolt, nor the other way around. But together, they form the tight fit necessary for the task. Like a nut and a bolt, a husband and wife cannot enjoy doing the same thing together unless they enjoy doing completely different things together. A father must therefore embrace the reality that God has appointed us to different roles, and he must seek to perform his particular role in the relationship. Egalitarianism cries foul when you try to say men and women are created to fill different roles from each other. Douglas Wilson comments on this saying, on this by saying, egalitarianism wants to say when confronted with something that scripture says a father should take responsibility for, that the arrangement is not fair. Why shouldn't the mother be the breadwinner? Why shouldn't the men be the one to submit to his spouse? Of course, in one sense, it is not fair, but it is good. As Christians, we believe Yahweh created all things, and he created them down to the smallest particle of existence. And within that existence, he has ordered creation and equipped his creation with different abilities and tasks. Men do not carry things because they have broad shoulders. They have broad shoulders because God created them to carry things. Fatherhood has a point. It was made and created for a task. And failure to assume and perform that task leads to confusion and chaos in the relationship. Motherhood, likewise, has a purpose. And if both positions fulfill their individual, different purposes, the end, unified goal of both should be more easily performed. If they each assume the wrong roles, or either one of them refuses the duties of their role, then the union tends to fall apart which is evident today for sure in the number of failed marriages we see even among professing Christians. If if at this point you are thinking to yourself that I am obviously promoting a role of wives being barefoot and pregnant at home, then it just goes to show how far the egalitarianism, egalitarianism dogma has permeated and become entrenched in your mind, and hopefully you can erase that and get past it as we discuss this this morning. So then, what makes a father? A boy is born and grows into a man, but that does not make him a father. He gets married. Now he is a husband, but that does not make him a father. Today is not husband's day. It is father's day. It is the day established for children to honor their father and the role he plays in their life. So a father is someone with children under his care. So then you have children under your care. Now what? Do we just wing it? Or are we told somewhere of what we are to do and how we are to do it. Well, of course, as Christians, we believe we have a life manual, and we talk about it often, even if we do not always read it as often. Does it give instructions on being a father? For those who read it, the answer is an affirmative one. I would like to briefly examine a few basic biblical foundations for fathers, number one being the Bible is sufficient to supply you with all the information needed to raise your children. In other words, in order to be a biblically faithful father, we can find all that we need to know right in the Holy Scriptures themselves. The Bible gives us instructions and applications for most all areas of life, and child-rearing is included. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 tells us early on that Yahweh had inst- what, what Yahweh had instructed for his people. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The children were to be taught all the ways and commandments of Yahweh. This was a fundamental task and one to be done with a multi-generational view in mind. Faithfulness to Yahweh was to be taught and passed down through the family as part of daily life. It was not a task bestowed upon a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or some other religious leader. It was to be done by the Father. Later we are told of Christ's greatest commandment, which is a summary of the law and the prophets, and that likewise is to be a topic of conversation between you and your children. Fathers, you are to teach the biblical precepts to your children. Part of your duty is the spiritual nurture of his family. As an instruction to child rearing, Ephesians 6.4 tells us what else fathers should do. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So while fathers are spiritually leading their family, they must also beware not to provoke their children to anger, but on the contrary, should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And where does that instruction come from? Well, the word of God, obviously. So the scripture is sufficient, and the scripture tells us to use it to do so. We study the word in order to learn about God. It is where we go to properly form our thoughts about God and his ways, and it is likely, likewise where we are to turn in order to find what we need to know on how to teach our children. After all, if we find the scripture sufficient to equip us, then without question it is sufficient to teach our children. And it is also likewise sufficient to teach us how and how we are to go about equipping our children. A verse most everyone will quickly recognize is that of 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, while this is not directed at parents, it is applicable to the topic of teaching others. And unless you can honestly say that that children do not need teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness in order to be a complete child of God, then this verse is applicable to our topic. Yes, this verse is more directly applicable to ministers being scripturally equipped to deal with situations arising under their leadership. Those ministers, though, would undoubtedly run into a situation that may indeed include child-rearing issues among the people and thus shows us that scriptures are good for instructing in that area also. So, the word of God is sufficient for this area of instruction. But, of course, it is not sufficient on the shelf, so it must be read, studied, and applied. And one thing to be warned against is the idea that we need Christianity and something else. In other words, it does not require Christianity and psychology, Christianity and counseling techniques, Christianity and the latest technique from so-and-so author that is the current bestseller. For instance, you can grab an exhaustive concordance and go through it all you want, but you will not find one biblical teaching on the topic of timeouts anywhere. There is no such scriptural teaching on the topic, and as it is a modern fad that has swept through the parenting circles based on psychological and counseling techniques, that is exactly where it comes from. Christian parents hear of it, and they say, let's give it a try. And even though they believe the scripture holds answers to life's questions, on this topic they choose to look into a different direction. A good rule of thumb, the scripture is sufficient. So if you find an applicable biblical precept or principle in Scripture, it is acceptable to use it. If you find no such precept anywhere in Scripture, it ought to be not relied on or tried. Now, point two 
of the foundational principles. Godly, strict child-rearing is not a substitute for regeneration. Regeneration is an act of God whereby the Holy Spirit changes the nature of sinful people. And you can discipline your child thoroughly, and they can be the best-behaved children you know, but yet not be regenerated. Many people confuse being well-behaved for being regenerate. But not only, but not only are not all well-behaved people regenerate, but not all regenerate people are always well-behaved. The goal is regeneration, and it is this same principle of having regeneration as the goal that became one of the prime reasons my wife and I chose to homeschool our children. Many people today homeschool and do so for many reasons. Many will tell you it's in order to give their children a better education. Our goal has always been to give our children a more biblical education, but to do that with the end goal being to teach them the ways of Christ in hopes of leading them to their regeneration. Remember, your children did not learn how to sin from you, nor from, your friend, from their friend down the street, but they are sinners by nature. And as we all clearly understand, Paul teaches us in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spreads to all men because all sin. Many issues can arise for Christian parents who live in a Christian ghetto. Now, a Christian ghetto is a subculture, an evangelical ghetto where all of their friends are Christian, all of their activities are Christian-based. They listen to only Christian music. No one around them ever curses, and everything is clean and nice. Somewhere, Someone in this type of surrounding has a nice, clean little baby, and everything is fine until the child gets to a certain age. Then all of a sudden, all kinds of horrendous things begin happening, and the parents are shocked, and they become confused and horrified. They begin wondering, what have they done wrong? And they begin thinking that they are failures. In actuality... This is just a sign that they, like you, are born in Adam. As Paul discusses in Ephesians 2.3, mankind are by nature referred to as children of wrath. Children are in Adam like us and are therefore a child of wrath. And the only thing to correct that is regeneration. The false teaching and confusion today come when assuming cuteness means goodness. It is a very easy mistake to make. We assume because babies are so cute and they have all this parental affection that they are therefore clean and innocent. But that is not the case. The only thing a child lacks in regard to their sin is a required intelligence and motor skills. Once they acquire the intelligence and motor skills, they become noticeably sinning, and that is their nature. Almost any kind of baby is cute. Baby tigers are cute, but by nature they are man-eating animals. And as they grow and mature, their nature will come, take over and it will come out. And likewise with our children. The humanistic lie that is being propagated is that childhood is an age of innocence and purity. But that is absolutely a false premise. The false dichotomy in many people's minds is that to compare a childlike innocence to an adult's sin and evil. But that is not a biblical comparison at all. The biblical contrast is between immature evil and mature evil. That is what we are dealing with when it comes to children. That means that the goal of every Christian parent, the goal of all of our prayers and all the discipline, is the regeneration and salvation of your child, and not, only, and not just the good manners of your child. While having them be well-behaved and having them mind you when you instruct them is all very good, it is not the end goal, but only the intermediate step. Sadly, that has become the focus and goal of way too many parents, and it leads to all kinds of unbiblical means in seeking to accomplish that goal. 
Well-behaved children are great, but that is the first step, and you are not to settle it there. Nor are you to seek to get there by unbiblical methods. The topic of godly child discipline is a whole other topic, and we cannot delve into that this morning, so we move on to our third point, which is men are the head of the wife and household. We find this out, laid out in a few places. We read some of them earlier, Ephesians 5, 23 and 25, which tell us, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the husband is the head of the wife. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. Paul tells us in Corinthians a similar statement of the roles. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of, the, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians 11.3. 19th century Presbyterian pastor B.M. Palmer, in his book on the family, states it like this. Under every government, the sovereignty must vest in some, must rest in some recognized head. There must be a last tribunal beyond which no appeal can lie. In the supreme sense, this belongs to God alone. But in the family, which is constituted under his providence, the dread prerogative of representing his power attaches to the husband and the father. He is delegated as the head of the domestic state, and his authority binds the house together. Husbands, you are the head of your wife, and she bears children to you. But as her head, you are likewise the head of the whole household. Now, this may sound like a man's dream, and many abuses have occurred with the wrong thought pattern here, turning this position, positional idea into a mockery because of the abuse. Two things all you husbands need to remember at this point. First, headship of a husband over the wife and the home is, in general means one key thing that men must grasp. Everything that goes on in the home is the husband's responsibility. Everything without exception. If it happened in your house to your wife, your children, or their sin, their attitudes, their responses, everything, it is the father's responsibility. This is true in marriage and child rearing. Now, do not misunderstand me. Yes, anything that goes on in the entire house is the husband's responsibility, but this is not saying it is all the husband's fault. I don't hear women gasp at that. Come on. (laughs) So if you, the father, go to work, and while you are gone, your wife gets into sin all by herself, and she stays in sin for hours until you come home, whose fault is it? It is her fault. Who's responsible for it? You, as the husband, are responsible for it. As the husband, your job is to willingly and lovingly embrace the responsibility as being part of your marriage vows. It is something you vowed before God to do, and you must lovingly take responsibility and deal with it. And that goes for everything in your household, wife and children included. In doing this, you are a picture of Christ and the church. What did Christ do? He assumed responsibility for things that weren't his fault. After all, he could have said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, it's not my fault. But he did not. Instead, he assumed responsibility for our sins. We're not accomplishing the taking of sins on like Christ did, but we are a picture of that reality. Sadly, many men today have abdicated their roles for home leadership and instead feel their job ends after working all day and bringing home a paycheck so they come home, eat, and watch TV. Instead, your job does not end there, for you are to assume the role of leader for your household. The security of your children is your responsibility. Whether they are properly disciplined or not is your responsibility. 
Whether or not they are well-loved and well-taught is your responsibility. If you assume that proper role as home leader, then you would never have an excuse to fall into the typical trap of seeing your wife in some adversarial role. You'll never start spouting accusations like, why haven't you done this or that? Or, you've been with the kids all day, why haven't you dealt with such and such a problem? You assume full responsibility. So, if your wife is exasperated by something, you do not have blame to blame, you do not blame her for not being able to solve it. Or you don't react angrily, wondering why she brings it to you since you weren't involved and don't want to be bothered by it. You assume full responsibility. It is your role as head of household. Second key thing to remember, which should temper your male view, your view of male headship, is that headship does not involve self-serving, tyrannical, selfish, and getting your own way. Biblical headship involves servanthood authority. Christ was the Lord of the apostles, and yet he washed their feet. He had absolute authority over them, but had a servant's heart towards them. This is what authority means. More on this in a minute. But let's move on now to our fourth foundational point. Your children are designed to want to get away from you at some certain point. Let's look at Ephesians 5.31, where Paul is quoting from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now note, men are to leave their father and mother. God has designed your children to, at a certain age to not only want to get away from you, but it is their duty to do so. If your children are not desirous to leave, if your sons are not wanting to leave and establish their own family, or your daughters are not willing to leave and establish a new prime allegiance to another man, then you have done something wrong. It is a designed feature that your kids are going to be independent one day. Your goal is to prepare them for that time of independence by properly raising them in discipline. Now, as mentioned, discipline is a whole other topic in and of itself and is not what we're going to be dealing with today, but I do want to make a couple passing general comments on the topic. When your children are grown, let's say your son is 18 and leaving home to go in the military. Now he is out and about on his own, out from under your oversight and care. The question becomes... Has he been properly prepared to be able to properly function on his own? When he's out on his own, if self-control, godly standards, and a new nature are not well entrenched in him, he is going to get into some trouble. And this happens way too often, even in church-raised kids. Kids leave and go through some crazy rebellious times. At the time he is eight, by the time he is 18 and independent, it should mean that for a couple years prior to that, he has already been acting in a quasi-independent manner though under your oversight. Unfortunately, discipline practices are often practiced backwards in many families. In an overview, when your children are between one and five years old, they should live in a totalitarian police state at home. Their lives should be regulated to the minutest degree. Basically, everything is decided for them. This is a time when the parents should be on top of everything. This is the most exhausting time for parenting, but it is laying the foundation that will lead to easier times to come. Some parents are domineering all the way through, and that is not proper and is usually done for totally different reasons. But instead of being strictest for the first five years, the opposite is usually done. Normally what happens is during these early years, parents see their children as young and cute, and their sin, likewise, as little and cute, so it is often just excused, glossed over, or even laughed about. When children first start manifesting their sinful natures, it is causing less damage. It tends to be cute and funny, and parents wink at it and excuse it by saying things like, oh, it's the terrible twos. They see it as a phase, and they seek to just wait it out. But this is an ungodly thing to do. 
what happens is they wait it out. They don't discipline. They don't discipline. They don't discipline. And the child gets bigger and bigger. And excuses are made more and more. And now you have an older, undisciplined child. Next thing you know, they are big enough to get into some serious trouble. They go out and cause damage in town. They go out and get pregnant, or they get someone pregnant, or they get into drugs. Then the parent's response is, oh, no, we need to slam down some discipline on them. So they start clamping down, doing anything and everything in the name of discipline, much of which tends to be unbiblical methods. And they are doing this on a previously undisciplined teenager. And, of course, that provokes rebellion and anger. The terrible teens years, most say, but do they have to be so terrible? What should have been taking place is the opposite. Clamp down with strictness and strict discipline during the early years, training them early on to control themselves. And then as they get older, you should be gradually lightening up on the discipline so that by the time they reach their teen years, they are pretty much able to live independent and free from most heavy-handed rules. By this time, they are more disciplined, more self-controlled, and more responsible and mature, enough so that they can live in a quasi-independent state. Then, when they are ready to leave at 18 or so, they have already been living somewhat independent and are better conditioned to be to enter life where they are further independent. And this will lead them being less likely to run into their rebellious trouble when they leave home. In order to get on the right track of this, there is one thing any new parent needs to realize. Discipline is very time-consuming, especially during the early years. They are, the children are much more energetic and need much more oversight, and it wears parents down quickly. Many parents start off strong but get worn out and begin letting things pass. The goal should be to stick with it strong during those early years so that in the later years you end up with, a much, with much less trouble. You are working towards a goal of a more peaceful home life and a more responsible child in their teen years, so it is a goal worth setting and sticking to during the early years. To not do so provides a slightly easier time in the earlier years, followed by a much harder time in most all of the years from teenage life on. Note what is said in Ephesians 5.25 and 6.4. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Men, you are told to love your wife and bring up your children. And both of these are active verbs. They are not things that will happen if you come home laying around watching TV. They both require you to do something, to take action. Leadership in the home involves initiative. Christian husbands are a picture of Christ's love to the church. Regardless of how a husband acts, his actions say something loud and clear. They portray how the husband feels Christ is towards the church, whether this ends up looking, whatever this ends up looking like in action. The husband is either speaking a truth or he is speaking a lie, but regardless, his actions are speaking. They are not silent. If, as a husband, you fail to show initiative in loving your wife or bringing up your children and helping your wife to do that, then you are lying about Christ to everyone who sees your family. You're lying about Christ to your wife. You're lying about Christ to your children and to all of those around you. You are proclaiming that Christ neglects his church and is a slug on a sofa in the same way that I am a slug on a sofa. You are saying Christ cares about as much about the purity of his people as I do about the purity of my family. Those are all statements you are making whether you intend to or not. Sadly, it also reflects how you portray the Heavenly Father. We speak and teach our children about our Heavenly Father and how He loves His children. And as an earthly father, we speak loudly about how we feel the Heavenly Father is too. This can have horrible repercussions if we're not careful. 
Similar to what we just said about how we represent Christ, Douglas Wilson sees as an also uh, as, a, as sees it also as applying on how we represent our heavenly Father. He states, "Fathers are speaking about God the Father constantly. They do not have the option of shutting up. What they are saying may be true or false, but they are not in a position where they can refuse to say anything. A father who sits and stares, a father who is down at the office all the time, a father who deserts his family." A father who just donated sperm at the sperm bank are all, all of them are saying, are speaking. Of course, he doesn't just stop in detailing these fatherly traits. He continues on to state, a father who teaches his son to swing a bat, a father who listens to his daughter explain why Peter Rabbit shouldn't have disobeyed, a father who kisses their mom on the lips, a father who leads, reads for hours to his family in the evenings, all of them are speaking too. Then, as adults, it becomes easy to think of the Heavenly Father in terms that we grasp, and usually we end up with comparisons to our earthly father's traits. Thomas Smale puts it like this, unless the whole image of fatherhood is corrected or even redeemed, we, almost, we shall almost inevitably project onto God the Father we have loved or missed, have desired or resented, so that our adult spiritual life will be secretly controlled by our reactions to our earthly to our early family life. While a godly parental example can do much to lead children to faith in the Heavenly Father, abuse of this position has been one of the reasons many atheists claim as, a leading, as leading to their atheistic beliefs. I quote once more from Douglas Wilson, same section as his previous thought. This is why, father, why fathers need to learn how to be strict in the same way that God the Father is strict and to be merciful in the same way that he is merciful. If we are strict only... We crush the spirit of our children, or we provoke rebellion. If we are merciful only, we create a culture of entitlement and self-indulgence in the home. And in the worst possible combination, if we are strict where God is merciful and merciful where God is strict, then we are busy supplying the strip clubs and the fu- of the future with all their pole dancers and customers. <laughs> hey, he's never one to mince words. All of this leads to saying that part of taking an initiative with your kids is seeking to spend time with them. If you come home from a busy day at work and your goal is to just relax and read the paper or watch the news or whatever, and your little ones interrupt you seeking attention, give it to them. Better yet, take the initiative. Seek them out to spend time with them. They are not a bother and should never be seen as such. But in fact, if they are seeking attention, you are to give it to them. One of the key things I myself made myself do uh, as we were raising up small children over the years, was whenever I was on my computer doing work, which is where I was most likely always doing at home, <clears throat> I made sure that I was never too busy to stop and focus on the children when needed. There were plenty of times when I was working and getting into the zone, and in comes one of the children wanting something. My first instinct would, of course, to quickly appease them and quickly brush them off. But I always tried to stop and remind myself not to do that. I would always try to remember to stop what I was doing, turn and focus attention to the child at hand. Whether it was just for a hug or something other, some other inquisitive time, it is important that the children know we are never too busy for them when they need us and that they can always have quick access to us without feeling that they are a bother. Sure, sometimes they want to pull me away and go do something, and that has not always been possible. But simply turning from my work and focusing on the children for a time was something I tried to keep as a priority over the years. It is way too easy for men to think that their work is most important and that they ignore their family due to it. 
that should be avoided as much as possible. Back in my earliest days of child-rearing, we sat under a pastor who had a heart for this topic. He preached long, multiple series of topical sermons on many aspects of familial life and relations. And I learned a wealth of information on raising children as we were in our young child-rearing days. I wish I can say I succeeded in all the goals that I had set for myself back then, as well as wishing I had uh, consistently applied the learning that I had acquired. But I do feel that I was much better equipped from the time we were under his teaching. Seeking biblical Christian counsel from leaders who have a successful track record in this area is very beneficial for all new parents. Understanding the differences between the kinds of attention that boys need versus what girls need was an eye-opening education that I was glad to have learned at that time. These are not things that new parents know necessarily from just life, and the knowledge has been valuable in my approach to each. Moving on now, let's look briefly at 1 Peter 3, where he is addressing both husbands and wives. He starts in verse 1 of the chapter telling wives to be subject to their husbands, even if that husband is not obeying the word. Then, down in verse 7, he tells the husbands, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Bible refers to the wife as a weaker vessel. Typically in life, men tend to become, to be more competitive in life. And in being so, they exploit weakness. On the football field, if there is a weaker player identified on the opposing team, guess where most of the plays are going to be played? Men tend to be geared in a way that they tend to live life in a more competitive manner. This, however, must not be the case in marriage. Since we have become one flesh, your wife's weakness is your weakness. It is not something to gloat or take pride in. You must take the initiative and provide strength in any such area of weakness, both physical and spiritual. God has put you together to form a tight-fitting team, and and you support each other to become one unified unit. Competitiveness in a marriage is destructive. Humility is not. In the latter section of Mark 9, we have the story of where Christ asked the disciples what they had been discussing amongst themselves, and they wouldn't answer him. And why was that? We are told, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. To me, it shows true humili- the true humanity of them to hear that the disciples were arguing over who is the greatest. It is all part of the competitive nature, I guess. Okay, now, this is not a trick question, though, but since we've already covered it, but who does the Bible teach us is to be the greatest in the home? Okay, in the home, physically. The father. Okay, the husband. As we have seen, according to the Word of God, the husband is declared the head of the home. But again, that is not to be viewed as tyrannical position as the world tends to characterize it. Into, And right after we are told of this bickering among the disciples, we are told, and he, Yeshua, sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Yes, the husband is first in the home, so that he should likewise take on the role of a servant. As mentioned, Christ was the ultimate authority over his apostles, but he has become a servant too. Fathers must likewise become a servant to their families. Yes, the parents are the authority. Yes, fathers are the authority. But that office of authority properly and biblically reveals itself in the father's attitude of servanthood to the home. I quote from uh, the 
ancient uh, B.M. Palmer again, who states, Here is at once the limitation and grant of his power. The one is folded within the other. If he stands for God in the absoluteness of his rule, then must he take then must he take the justice, the tenderness, and forbearance of the divine lawgiver as the tests of his own fidelity. He who rules for God in this primary commonwealth must himself learn the law of love as the undertone of his own authority. A father is to be a leader, <clears throat> and what is one of the primary traits that we often hear about what makes a good leader. A good leader is said to be one who leads by example. A leader is not one who says go, but is one who says come, follow me. Fathers are likewise to be a leader who leads, not one who simply commands or directs. In the family, though, unlike what we typically think of when we think of leaders and followers, we should look away from we should look away from having a thinking pattern that sees things as a chain of command and look instead to things as a chain of submission. If you want to be first in a godly way, you should be servant to all. When a newborn infant enters your home, they have one idea in their head. They are the center of all things. And for the first few months, at least, that impression is enforced for everyone responds to their every beck and call. The parents are still the head of the home, but at the same time, they are the servants. That is the way it ought to be. Authority functioning in a godly way is an authority true and real, but only when it is operating as an authority of servanthood. That is a godly authority. (coughs) If you love your wife as Christ loved the church, she is going to respect you greatly. If you pour yourself out and serve your children in a godly biblical way, they will respect you properly. Now, Serving your children and wife does not mean giving them all that they want. Serving your wife and children means you are then you are there making decisions, not as an individual, but as a representative of a unit. All decisions, decisions should be made with the overall desire of goodness for the whole unit. Decisions and discipline are not to be done for the sole benefit of yourself. Think about the decisions you make, especially when it comes to your children. Whose benefit influences your decision? When you are reading or doing some other task and the kids are getting loud and getting out of line, do you discipline them because they have frustrated you and you want peace and quiet? This is not disciplining from a servant's heart. Servanthood authority seeks the betterment of others. You do what you do for their sake, not your own. Disciplining for peace and quiet is simply looking out for number one. This doesn't mean you don't discipline for these instances. It doesn't mean you don't work on instructing in control in these instances. It doesn't mean not setting limits for those in the household. It means that if you attempt to exercise authority in the home as a sort of biblically-backed way of getting your own way, then it won't take long before both your wife and your kids can see right through it. On the other hand, if it is evident that you are giving yourself to them and that the authority you wield and decisions you make is to benefit them and not just done so that you're for your own self-interest, then will be, there will be, they will be far more disposed to listen to what you have to say and will respect you naturally without having to be demanded. Point of fact, bringing up godly children requires lots and lots of tough work. Maintaining a healthy, loving marriage is tough work. Maintaining a peaceful and godly home is tough work. Practicing servanthood authority and giving of yourselves in order to do so consistently is really tough work. If you are man enough to do it, and you seek earnestly and with all humility to follow the pattern laid out by Yahweh for your position in life, 
His blessings will be upon you through this journey. And with that, I say, Happy Father's Day to those who strive for this calling. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the instruction you provide to us to how to be the fathers you would have us to be as men, how we should treat our families, our wives, our children. We pray that we would always be looking to your manual, your scriptures, to seek how we may do this more biblically, more diligently, how we may honor you in all that we do in our families. We thank you so much for the love you have given, so much for the for your son who was given to us as an example. Help us, Lord, to honor you in all that we do. We thank you for this. Amen.